it was actually Donald Trump who was in private life at that point who started yeah. tweeting about Ebola. Yeah, and really driving. We based on our analytics, though that tweet and his response really pumped up public apprehension to the disease. High impact, low probability events are a planner's nightmare. You know that you need to think about them. How can you actually prioritize which event, terrorist attack, natural disaster, disease outbreak, deserves attention? And how can you sell the risk of that to the people who need to fund it, but not oversell it? Risky Business is a conference where these kind of things are discussed. How do we think about risk? And how can we plan for it? At this year's conference, we heard from the men who rescued the boys in the cave in Thailand, the firemen in charge of Grenfell, and the various medical teams who responded to the latest terrorist attacks in the UK. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor at the BMJ. And at Risky Business, I was lucky enough to talk to Amy Pope. Amy worked as an advisor to the White House during President Obama's tenure. And there, she was one of the people charged with thinking about these high-impact, low-probability events. My name is Amy Pope. I am a partner at a law firm in London called Schillings and previously served in the Obama administration as part of the National Security Council staff. Which must give you um, a really fascinating insight into this. So a lot of what we've been talking around for the last day are these hugely impactful events. But they're events that don't happen very often. Um, they're not like the they're not the sort of everyday thing that it's easy to uh, to put money aside and training aside and time aside to think about and plan and prepare for. Um, but that was kind of part of your job was to, to think <laughs> right. about these things. Um, could you tell us a little about about your job yeah. and, and and that sort of aspect of it? So I served in the White House from 2012 um, until the end of President Obama's administration. My job was basically to bring together the different federal agencies who needed to respond to whatever crisis was happening. Um, my particular responsibility was entirely related to what was going to happen in the United States. So, for example, while Syria might have been an issue for some of my colleagues, my primary concern about something like Syria was what is the impact on refugees, on our security, on our supply chains? How is it going to impact the United States in particular? So that meant um, my responsibilities range from hurricane response to migration, um, kids showing up at the border, um, terrorism, cyber attacks, and infectious diseases. Just a small remit <laughs> there. Um, before Syria happened, people didn't expect that right. to be a thing. That's something that that's, that's hard to prepare for. I mean, at that point, were you prepared? Had you was this something that you'd you'd thought about? Had you got some plans in place? You sort of have broad playbooks, right? And and every time a crisis happens, you end up modifying those playbooks. So in two thousand nine, there was an outbreak of flu in the United States. Twenty two million people were infected with flu. About four thousand people died, and immediately afterwards, 
we created a flu response playbook, mm-hmm. right? But then Ebola came and the flu response playbook actually wasn't that helpful. So people tend to build a response to what just happened as opposed to being able to build for the future. Yes, I can see. And when it comes to something like Ebola, um, again, the impact of, of, of that can be huge. But um, I imagine your job of trying to say this is uh, something that happens in, you know, sub-Saharan Africa uh, to people there. Um, but we need to be aware of that in the States. That's quite a hard sell. It's really hard to sell. We were very behind the ball when it came to Ebola response in the United States. We knew, we, we had our eye on what was happening in West Africa. We knew that Ebola was raging out of control there, but we just kind of thought, we have it, you know, we have good infection control procedures in place in the US. We know how to manage these things. It's not gonna be something we need to worry about. So our biggest concern that the year of the Ebola outbreak, there was a big African leader summit that was going to take place in Washington, DC. And our major concern that summer was making sure that with the number of um, African leaders and their entourage, et cetera, coming in, that we were well prepared for anybody who might be sick. But that's very different than what actually happened. And um, we were not we were we were not where we needed to be. But I suppose that your role was to look at what's happening in the in the states, um, and arguably it was you know well it was it's not arguably it, it, the fact of it's WHO's role to to look after what was happening in Africa. Um, so in a situation like that, are you thinking that's their problem? They're dealing with it, or are you kind of trying to to I don't know second guess, keep an eye on on the situation? It depends on. Um a number of factors. So if you stick with Ebola as an example, we were just looking at what was happening in West Africa, thinking, mm, this is not so good. It's possible it can come over here. But we weren't doing the big planning that around an, the, the concept that there might be an outbreak in the United States. We just didn't really think that was that plausible. It wasn't until we had a Liberian national who came to the United States and died of Ebola and then infected two nurses during the course of his treatment that all of a sudden our viewpoint on what could happen and how prepared we were to respond was completely turned on its head. So, you know, I think that happens a lot. I mean, I I also worked on unaccompanied migrant children who came to the border from Central America. We had been watching Central America for some time. We knew the situation there was quite dire and was getting worse, it was deteriorating. There were increased narcotics going through the region, increased corruption and violence, um, in decrease in economic opportunity, a youth bulge, a lot of things that were sort of um, brewing mm-hmm. towards something significant happening. But that's just not enough to get the money for any meaningful solution, the political will or interest for any meaningful solution. It wasn't until 60,000 kids show up, showed up at the border that anybody really paid attention. Do you think it does require that crunch point yes. to actually pull the attention of yes. funders? And- I think the best uh, planning is with an eye toward what could happen, right? So we knew something could happen in Central America for a long time. 
we had thought we needed a better response there, better engagement, um, more engagement with the governments, but we couldn't do it until there was a crisis. The important thing about the crisis was that we'd actually had some planning and thinking that was in place so that we could fairly quickly start to move it forward. Likewise, after Ebola, it really sharpened our thinking about how do we respond to something that we that we haven't really dealt with in the U.S. before to make sure that we can manage it. So right after Ebola came Zika. Mm-hmm. And with our Zika response, we were so much better prepared because we just lived through one crisis and, and took some lessons from it. And so I'm just wondering about that that process of doing that planning. Do you have sort of, you said you have different playbooks on things, but then when you start to get an inkling that things might be going bad, is, is it a case of making loose plans and then a little bit more planning and there's a bit more planning? Like, how do you actually sort of go through that? The In the best case scenario, you start bringing people together as, as the situation starts to heat up. And you get people in the room together and you start talking through the different contingencies and you start working through what resources do we have, who can do what, what can we put in place in the short term, what do we need, you know, it's a more longer term option. So you just start, for, for me, the number one takeaway is that it's about the relationships that you're building. People have to know one another, they have to trust one another, they have to share information with one another. And the more you start to bring people in as you're watching a situation unfold before it hits crisis point, the quicker you're able to respond to it. Mm-hmm. But that's, I mean, it's not to say, you, it's not just the group of people. You, you then have to have someone who is empowered to move it forward. So one of the mistakes, I think, from our early Ebola response was that we had USAID, which is the U.S. Foreign Assistance Agency on one hand. We had the um, Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, on the other. We had Homeland Security, we had the State Department, we had the Defense Department, we had a whole bunch of different actors. None of them saw the situation the same way. None of them had agreed on any one solution. And there was a lot of just, the British say faffing about, Mm -hmm. (laughs) where people were just kind of admiring the problem from their different point of view, not really working on a solution. There wasn't really somebody in charge. When it hit the crisis point, the president decided we need to have somebody who's owning this. And so he brought in Ron Klain, who who was not a doctor and didn't know anything about Ebola specifically, but knew how government worked and was very good at getting, getting people to focus. I suppose part of that reticence must be around a fear of overstating a problem, pushing for an, you know, a solution to something that wasn't going to be a, a problem in the end. Well, I mean, I, I felt that way with Zika in some ways. We were, after living through Ebola, you look at Zika, Zika is actually a much bigger threat to the United States because of the outbreak in Latin America, because of the tropical um, areas of the United States. The Puerto Rico In Puerto Rico, there were a number of incidents of Zika. And, and we knew that the impact on babies could be quite detrimental. But in the end, so we, we put all this planning into place. We worked with the states. We had um, funding. We had planning. We had communication. We had all the pieces. And then we didn't really have a major outbreak of Zika in the United States, right? So it's a little bit. Then people are like, oh, why did, why did we do all of that? But then on the other hand, if you'd had maybe just 
20 babies who would end up with severe birth deformities and we hadn't taken action we would have been on the back foot yeah i mean that sounds like an incredibly hard job because going back to the, the, the wide range of things that you you kind of had responsibility for um it seems like you could plan and plan and plan and plan, yep. and plan forever yeah how do you prioritize that there is um there are a range of ways. So there are kind of the big, high impact, low probability events. And you we would plan for those by having these sometimes tabletop, sometimes real life sort of red teaming exercises. And you just throw people into a room and you start throwing problems at them and you get them to start thinking through how would we manage this. So that's that's part of it. And then again, it's kind of the day to day with something like infectious disease, the public health community and the security community are not terribly well aligned. They have very different perspectives and very different outcomes and objectives. Getting them to kind of work together on a more regular basis so that they start to bridge those differences and appreciate the other person's perspective, I think is really important. And so whether that's kind of, for us it would be, a monthly, here are the priority diseases around the world. Here's how likely they are to come here. Here's what we have in place. I mean, it was just sort of getting people in a room together to think broadly and talk through what we would do if. Mm. And talking about different priorities there that different groups have, I mean, it's not just the groups who are directly involved. I mean, for you, the public's perception of what you do right. and politicians' perception of what you do must have been really important. And was that something that you had to manage as you were Oh, yeah. I mean, so I'm not a doctor, right? I don't actually know very much about public health. <laughs> what I know is about how the government works and who can do what. And I know the different players, right? So my perspective on Ebola wasn't really about, do we have the right countermeasures? Do we have the right vaccines? Do we have... I, I don't know, I had to trust the the judgment of our experts. But what we saw happen is with the Thomas Duncan affair, people became quite hysterical and they thought, oh my God, right? There was a woman who had, one of the nurses who'd been infected had been on an airplane from Dallas, Texas to Cleveland, Ohio, two days before, about I think it was two days before she was diagnosed. And that really freaked people out. Her mother's house in Ohio was basically cordoned off. Um, they were threatened. They were, I mean, people were terrified. She'd gone to a dress shop to try on dresses for her wedding. People wouldn't go to that dress shop. I mean, they just thought, oh my gosh, if I go there, I'm gonna get Ebola. So managing public perception was more critical in many ways than the actual outbreak. Mm. Uh, because the fear was driving people to do silly things and politicians to make very silly decisions. I don't know if you saw what happened in the U.S. over here, but we had a governor who was insisting that a nurse be quarantined. We had, you know, it was just we had governors in the South who would not allow um, tractor-trailer trucks with um, Ebola waste to transit through their state. Even though the waste had been sanitized, there was no possible way there was any Ebola virus on that waste. They refused to allow the trucks to go through their state. So you just had crazy, crazy reactions that were driven by 
fear, politics, um, you know, sometimes people looking to exploit the issue and yeah. score political points. I mean, it's ri- we looked at, we were watching the Twitter traffic. It was actually Donald Trump who was in private life at that point, who started yeah. tweeting about Ebola. Yeah, and really driving, we, based on our analytics, though that tweet and his response really pumped up public apprehension to the disease. My God. Mm. I was talking to, so in the UK, we had um, a nurse who... Yes, I remember. Um, And I was talking to um, her doctors who were looking after her here in London, uh, in the specialist unit. And part of what they were saying was they were constantly finding out new things about the disease as it happened because it hadn't... It had been happening in a resourceful setting where you couldn't examine these things properly. That level of uncertainty, you know, from from your experts who are trying to inform you, um, how did you deal with that in, in the mix as well? One of the most important things in crisis response I've learned is the communications. It's identifying a communicator, a trusted communicator, and then limiting who else is communicating publicly. And that was, we didn't do that right at first. We had a bunch of people out there talking about the disease. And I think that was confusing to the public and then increased their level of apprehension. We ended up um, settling on, uh, there were sort of, um, there was a very fantastic, thoughtful doctor who'd done an HIV, a lot of HIV response in the past, who became our primary spokesperson on Ebola. And having him be the trusted voice that we put out onto the talk shows, we put into the news, we had, right? That I think was really helpful because he could put it into context. Mm-hmm. And the most important context, we didn't know a lot about the disease, but the most important context was it wasn't that easy to get it unless you were dealing with someone who was very, 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 very sick. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yes, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to... Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, earlier we talked about um, preparing for something that, that um, doesn't come to pass, but in the case of Ebola, uh, the WHO has been probably quite rightly criticised for their response at the time and uh, uh, their delay in declaring an emergency and, and, and coordinating things on the ground in West Africa. Part of that, people have, uh, have suggested, might have been because of uh, earlier swine flu and the fact that you know, they were criticised for, for being too prepared for that when it turned out not to be an issue. Um, and you've talked about this a little bit uh, already, but you, know, you were dealing with uh, President Obama at the time and someone who has to be in that, that kind of leadership role. Uh, I just wonder about that, that's almost that personal kind of responsibility that, that someone in that role has to take on. How did you yeah. advise him about that? I was really lucky to work for someone like President Obama because he is calm, he takes in expert information, he is very good at seeing the long-term impact and way toward that long-term goal um, and is 
comfortable taking some political heat. So he was very clear with all of us that we had to be led by the evidence and that we couldn't be led by the politics. The best example of it was the pressure to shut down our borders to people who were coming from the three West African countries. And there was pressure to deny visas to people coming from those countries, and there was pressure to stop flights from those countries. And the feedback that he got from the experts on the ground and the and the infectious disease experts was taking that action ultimately wouldn't protect the United States in the long run because it would push cases underground, it would make it more difficult to get resources into the country, and ultimately it would make it more difficult to stem the infection rate. He took that information and there was very heated discussion around the table about what we should do, but in the end, his view was, look, we can take the political heat over keeping the borders open. We came up with a compromise that basically anybody traveling from those three countries traveled into five airports where they could be seen by a doctor or a healthcare specialist. They were given a cell phone and they were given, their temperature was taken, they were monitored for any signs of the disease. And then they effectively had to stay in touch for 21 days. And that's the kind of leader that he was. You know, he felt like we, it is politically expedient to just shut down travel, but the long-term impact of that will be detrimental to us. And so how can we find a way to be very specific about the problem that we're trying to solve? Mm. And then ultimately, part of the reason that the, you know, response was, was handled well was the kind of intervention of the, the US government putting in support and, yeah. and funds into that. and. Was part of your planning and, and all of the stuff that you did to get him to that point part of that kind of ultimate decision to to, to intervene in West Africa and, and help? Yes, because we were seeing the projections around the infection that suggested there might be a million people infected. And we were seeing projections that suggested that if people in Nigeria, for example, were infected, that the possibility of the disease spreading across the world went up exponentially. So he felt, look, it's politically unpopular to do anything in West Africa. Nobody really knows anything about West Africa, but it's the responsibility of the United States. If nothing else, we need to be the ones to sort of step up and start putting resources in. And if we take that on, then we'll be able to pull in other partners. And I think that's what happened, right? He personally made phone calls to world leaders. He personally met with corporations and foundations and others who had funding and resources. He personally brought in the three West African leaders and sat down and talked to them about measures that they needed to take. He believed that absent that kind of leadership on an issue as difficult as Ebola, we would not be able to get it under control. It's an interesting contrast to the current president. I was going to say, <laughs> and the current Ebola, right? Right. I mean, this president, his first reaction is to shut down the borders without appreciating, I mean, if you look at Central America, for example, without appreciating what is the impact ultimately on the region and how do you Maybe it's politically expedient, but what's the long-term impact of that? And what problem will we be dealing with in five years or 10 years? I mean, even two years down the road. So it it's just a very different way of governing. 
And, you know, I, all I can say is that I'm glad that I was working for President Obama. That's it for this podcast. We'll be back later in the week with the experience of some doctors in Syria. And more from Risky Business. We'll hear how astronauts managed to keep good team dynamics going, despite the stress and confinement of living in outer space. So, if you've not done so by now, you really should subscribe. And as we're pretty much on all the places you could possibly find a podcast, you shouldn't have trouble finding us. Just look for the BMJ podcast. As always, we'd like to hear from you. So, go to bmj.com podcasts There you'll find out how to get in touch. We'd love to hear ideas from you about people we should be talking to or topics we should cover. So that's bmj.com slash podcasts to let us know. That's it for this episode. Until next time, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.